Hello and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell story, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Well, Emmy voting season is almost upon us, and we begin our coverage this week with the Netflix limited series, The Queen's Gambit. I think like a lot of people, I binged this show and was really into it when it first premiered last fall. So I'm thrilled to be doing a podcast episode to talk about the art and the craft of this pretty amazing series. I'm very pleased to have on the show today the picture editor for the series, Michelle Tesoro. And she is going to be in conversation today with Wiley Stateman, who is the sound designer for the show. And if you've listened to our podcast before, you might remember Wiley. Uh, the last time he was with us was when he was uh, Oscar nominated for his work on Quentin Tarantino's film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it's a thrill to have Wiley back on the show again. The Queen's Gambit was really kind of a, a surprise hit for Netflix. It really was a, a huge hit. And uh, I, who knew that chess could be so riveting to watch? So I'm really curious to kind of listen to these two amazing artists talk about how they made the game of chess so compelling and riveting to watch uh, through the course of this series. Um, so let's dive in and hear about their creative process, their collaboration, and how they pulled off this amazing show. So Michelle and Wiley, thank you guys so much for taking some time to talk with us today about The Queen's Gambit. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I, I binged the show when it originally was when it originally came out and then when Netflix asked us to do this episode, it was a, it was a great pleasure to go back and watch the show again. Uh, Cause the first time I just got caught up in the story and I wasn't paying attention to the craft or anything. It was just a really, really fun, powerful story. And, but then it was really great to go back and, and actually pay attention to the details. So I wanted just to start off by asking um, both of you, um, uh, you know, in terms of like cinematic uh, subject matters, a, a movie about an orphan girl playing chess wouldn't seem to be the most compelling uh, material out there possible. And yet this show is so amazing. What, you know, how did you approach the challenge of making a movie about an orphan girl playing chess be cinematic and interesting? When Scott first approached me about um, doing the project, um, you know, he had me read the book because at the time there wasn't um, there wasn't a script that he had written for the series. So, and you know, when I read Walter Tevis's novel, it seemed very cinematic to me. I could obviously imagine it in my head because it's a book and there's descriptions and things like that. But um, I just think the story, her story, is is compelling because she's such an unusual character. So whether she would have been playing chess or playing pool <laughs> I think it I think it was um I think it would have been interesting anyway uh so in terms of it being uh cinematic uh you, you know it's hard to it's hard to say I mean I think you know obviously the book read differently differently but when when Scott you know wrote the script for it he was really thinking about you know what are different ways that we can we can portray it you know, um, and make it exciting. And I think what he realized um, and continued to realize during the shoot was that it, it was all about the drama and being on the faces and really focusing on the stakes of the game instead of actually the game itself, you know, unless it had something to do with the drama. 
So um, I think in in that respect, it's, we were able to to make it interesting and riveting and and therefore cinematic. You know, it's funny because uh, when Scott approached me, he was really very excited about this project. And uh, it took me a moment or two to figure out what he was excited about. Uh, but he thought there were tremendous possibilities for sound. And I have to uh, say thank you, I guess, to him, uh, because in the end, there really was. We, we, we kind of uh, developed this sort of sound for the film, um, you know, as we as Michelle was cutting the film. So uh, it was an exploratory process for us. Uh, but some of the things that that he had promised, which was that this was going to be a really deep dive into these characters, I think he was able to deliver. And because of um, of, of Carlos um, uh, Rivera's music uh, and Steve's, uh, Steve Steve uh, Meisler's you know photography, we were able to uh, make something that uh, became kind of a compelling story and. As you say, people, you know, we binged watched it for a year, but uh, most of the audience did it over the course of, you know, of a weekend and, and really enjoyed it. So it was quite rewarding in that regard. Yeah. One of the things I find remarkable about this show, uh, and I'm curious as to if you, if you think this is part of why it's been so successful, you know, normally with episodic shows like this, you've got multiple directors and multiple editors, but this show, all seven episodes directed, written and directed by Scott Frank, you are the you're the picture editor on all seven episodes. Wiley is the sound designer on all seven episodes. It's almost like you it's more like you made a seven hour movie that then kind of got. But can you talk a little bit about why that was the right approach for this particular show? And uh, if that is part of why it's so cohesive and strong from a craft standpoint? Yeah, you know, I'm not quite sure whether I mean, we chose this particular way of doing it for um, the story we were telling other than, I mean, I think we did it this way because this is how, how we like to work. You know, I, mean, we did it. The, the grand experiment experiment was with Godless and, um, and we just loved it so much that we knew that this is what we were going to do again, no matter what the story was we were going to tell. So I think, you know, what you're seeing is, um, the result of, all of us having a shorthand with each other and understanding, you know, how we were all going to work together in, in the process that we were doing and, and, and the reason why we're able to bring our best A game, because we're all so comfortable, you know, with, with, with this way of doing it. Um, and I think I was a lot more confident with Godless. I mean, we had 120 days of shooting. This was a little bit, this was like 80 days of shooting. Um, I was really like taken aback by the amount of, of work and I wasn't sure I could do it. And I think um, by the time we did the Queen's Gambit, I was confident, completely con confident in the fact that I could do it. Uh, you mentioned um, 80 days of production and 120 days on Godless. Tell me a little bit about how you work with Scott during production. Um, do you go to location? Are you, are you in one place? during uh, or are you in one place during the shoot and kind of what's your method around you know a lot of editors that first assembly is is show them everything they shot is that the approach or how you know how forward are you in the editing process during production and what you initially show to scott so you know i kind of came up with this 
plan for him during Godless because he's shooting all of the episodes. I really thought it was way too late to show him in assembly when he stopped shooting, you know, and the thing is, is when they shoot, they, you know, they're shooting cross boarded all the episodes at once. So, you know, it was a good chance that you weren't going to have a full episode, you know, in order, you know, per se. So what I had to do, um, and I just, you know, he was comfortable with this was as I had sequences going, maybe I would, get a scene done, you know, assembled that was shot earlier in the week, or, you know, maybe I would wait to gather a whole 20 minutes worth of scenes um, to then show him and send him while he was shooting so that it gave him time and us time um, to have these conversations and see it informs him about, you know, the scenes that might be coming up for him to shoot as well as, oh, you know, maybe we really need to get this shot. You know, that doesn't happen a lot of the times, but maybe 10% of the time he was like, oh, you know, I didn't, I I didn't have time to get this. Can you show me how that, you know, he knows he's going to see how I put it together. And then we can, you know, based on my cut, decide what, what is really needed. So, um, you know, we, we did it this way. And in fact, and because I'm not trying to, you know, track the show with temp sound effects and temp music, you know, and it's okay for Scott to see things in, in or dry way. I'm not rushing to try to get a full assembly with temp everything, you know, eight days, two days after, after they stop shooting, you know, and he's more familiar. So the anxiety of having to watch like a first assembly is dissipated, you know, cause that's always like the worst part, as he says, for a director is watching the first assembly. So it's better to give him the medicine one pill at a time <laughs> um, and that we work um, towards an assembly with sound and music together, um, which basically is uh, ends up being, you know, I think we, we, we finished with like with the first three we're ready to present like sometime in March and then the next three, three weeks after that. So, or two weeks after that, I should say. Well, you brought up a couple of interesting things uh, <clears throat> that I definitely want to discuss in more detail, like your process and workflow. But our friends at Netflix have been really gracious to give us some great clips uh, to take a look at and listen to and discuss. And so, Michelle, you were talking about um, the use of close-ups and the way the chess scenes were shot and 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 how it's varied and interesting. So I want to I want to play a, a clip from this is from episode six. Uh, this is Beth's uh, kind of uh, her, her match against uh, Berghoff in Paris. And she has gone out the night before and had a big night on the town uh, with, uh, with, her, uh, with her friend. And so she's late and hungover as she shows up for this big chess match with the Russian champion Berghoff. And interestingly enough, this is a callback to the cold open from the very opening of the series. So uh, we're going to take a, a, a quick look and listen at this clip, and then maybe you can walk us through how the sequence is constructed. Mm-hmm. 
So there is so much going on in that sequence. Um, there's the uh, just amazing score by Carlos uh, Rafael Rivera, which um, is a, a huge element of the series. There's the ticking of the chess clocks. There's the there's the water. The it's like there's so many uh, elements that are going on here. But tell us about the construction of the sequence and how you uh, managed to build all this tension in the chess game. Yeah, this is one of those where, I mean, it was partly in the script and like half in the script and half not, <laughs> you know, I think, um, you know, Scott had shot this actually, in fact, this Paris sequence of her rushing in and sitting there playing and sweating it out um, initially was like, we we're supposed to cold open the first three episodes like that and we ended up only doing the first one this way so i had all this footage extra footage even <laughs> of like of of how um this match was gonna end up and there was a lot that i had left on the cutting room floor but i think that what we wanted to drive home um was that it wasn't going well and i didn't know how i was going to show that because he rarely showed the the um the board and the only part of the board that I had was, you know, the display board, which they had him move. And it was just one really, really long take of the guy like doing all the moves. And, and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to use this. But um, I think, you know, the way it came together is like, uh, obviously, there are parts where they're moving ahead and it was mostly shots of of her looking at Borgov and Bar Borgov looking at her and people looking at them like feel, and it was a lot of reactions of people in the room. And, you know, those shot, um, the flashbacks of, of Benny, you know, were also scripted, but, um, but it added to a point of tension where I, where I had to kind of create the timeline. And I used that one shot of the dis display board to try to show passage of time um and i couldn't figure out how i was going to do it but i you know i kind of figured out this way well maybe it could work on its own so it doesn't have to play um play in real time uh and then i think looking at it, i think initially i'd asked the assistant to put it together so that you only saw the pieces move and maybe do it every six frames and it sort of had this weird effect that kind of reminded me of the clock um uh, the way the the clock sounds and i think I think they were still shooting. Um, we're in the middle of, of shooting the whole series, but I had asked them every time they finished shooting a sequence to send us back the clocks that were used for um, for each tournament so that we had the opportunity to record them um, and the sounds that, you know, the um, they would make and, and everything like that and the flags and stuff. So, because I know that Wiley likes to, and his team likes to um, gather those materials. So um, I was like, oh, you know, that'd be great to have this and just have that be the the metronome, if you will. Um, and we recorded that and that was actually my spine for the whole thing was that particular clock that they used. And cause it wasn't always even actually this clock, Every, you know, when it moved to the other side, it was actually, it, it had a different tone actually to that. And I, I, re I realized, I was like, oh, well, I can't use just them recording the whole thing. I have to loop her side the whole time as if, you know, it's only her clock running. So I, I kind of had 
um, I think it was Eric Hirsch at the time, who was our, our sound editor, um, he gave me a track to use and he recorded it. Um, and I was able to use that and every move that we that she makes that um, they had as, as the move as the um, game goes on is on that metronome. So I wanted like, even when she does the clock, it's sort of, it's in time to that, to that, and it doesn't, things don't vary out of it. So I had put it all together and I think, you know, Scott looked at it and he's like, oh, I really like it with just the clock. And I'm like, oh, it gets kind of annoying. <laughs> I mean, there's tension, but you know, then there's really just being annoyed, you know? So, um, and I think at that point, you know, we were just, you know, cause Scott usually and I, uh, we, we put it together but without effect, you know, before we send it off to the guys and, and, and we assembled it pretty much as you see it. Um, and then we sent it off to them. And, and I think um, our music editor, you know, was like, well, I think I have an idea <laughs> for what we can do, you know, and he had to actually kind of convince Scott to listen to it with some sort of music. Um, and I don't know, I can't speak to their process once, once they got it, but, um, but that's how it came together from my end. The clock, you know, plays a very important role in, in all of the chess matches. And it's not just the obvious of just a clock tick and then finding a, a 60 beats per, per minute uh, rhythm. It's really about the plosive nature of hitting the stop button. And as Michelle said, then the next clock would pick up at a rhythm if you just used real time. So we were, we were constantly playing with two very important factors during these games. Um, one is just the clock tick itself and the plosive nature of stopping the clock and restarting the clock. Uh, then the other was like adding Foley and little bits of sound design that were always in this rhythm. So anything that fell out of rhythm was discounted or, or eliminated um, or played in scale much lower. So, you know, the interesting part about uh, Queen's Gambit so much of it plays in Anya's head. Beth, Anya, the, the, character, the lead character, uh, is a beautiful woman. And whether it's her makeup or her wardrobe or just the way she shot, you know, we had the wonderful advantage of that, that beauty. And so what we tried to do was add to that beauty, I guess, rhythm, which, you know, which we were sort of locked in with the clock. But as Michelle said, we could we could create our rhythm for continuity or discontinuity, which is really for the sound designer, that is where the game is played and, and or won or lost because um, continuity brings um, the audience through a series of, of disruptive cuts. Um, and discontinuity is very interesting for punctuation. So whenever the moves go back and forth, we have this ability to sting or stick the, the landing uh, of, of, of the entrance of the next picture cut. So um, I don't know, I'm gonna geek out with you a little bit, Clint, here, but I, I'd like to present an idea. That's perfect, because it actually answered one of my questions, which is like, one of the things that I noticed about the show is that you know, I was watching it with someone who doesn't play chess and doesn't know chess. And still, it's riveting. It's still incredibly mesmerizing to watch. And these tricks that you all use in terms of the rhythm and the and the the point and counterpoint, I think is part of the part of the reason why all that why that works so well. 
Yeah, and basically focusing the audience attention on a very specific line of story. So, you know, occasionally, like you say, the drinking or the, the breathing even is, plays a very important role in, in these matches uh, because it's, it's an aerobic state that tells you a lot about a, an actor and their performance. Um, so those things are, are, were the, the kind of tools that made the chess matches so interesting, you know, and, and of course the, they vary throughout the film as, as uh, Beth progresses from a young girl to a very, you know, accomplished grandmaster. What I really like about the sequence that we just looked at was that you feel there's all this tension that's happening inside of her, but all the elements of either the shots of the people looking at her, staring her down, her close-ups of her sweating, and and but also like the sound and the music, everything feels like it's coming to this crescendo. And when Borgov makes that last move, not only do you, you feel the change, you feel the change completely at the room kind of drops out, you know, and without even really understanding <laughs> that, you know, what the move was and, you know, technically why, she lost, but it doesn't, you know, everything else tells you that, that she's failed in that moment. Right. Right. Well, and one of the things that I really appreciated that for you both that like, uh, you know, we look, this show, we talk about, we talk about sound as a storytelling tool. And one of the things I really appreciated, uh, as you go through and especially Wiley, you were talking about as Beth progresses in her skills, but also as the stakes rise, like the sound of the chess, you know, playing, shifts as well. Sometimes it's very, you know, very subtle, kind of rapid fire, light, light moves as she's moving things quickly around the board. But then when some of these matches, as it gets heavier and the stakes get higher, like, you know, when she puts a piece down, there's a, you know, a, a much more present big sound. And so you really kind of move and tack with her as the stakes change from a sound. Yeah. Design. You know, chess is a wonderful game, but it's also sort of a board level warfare, you know, experiment. And you're constantly playing out moves in your head. And that's another wonderful thing that, that would, you know, that we couldn't have understood from the script, but as you see the way Scott Frank sort of blocked the scenes, you know, uh, with, with Steve, that we are in Beth's head or we're in each of the, the chess player's head. And that gives us a great opportunity to sort of explore that space. You know, it's a, um, it's a very aggressive game of, of control or lack thereof, you know, if you're the victim or the loser or the, the uh, losing, you know, opponent. Yeah. I want to ask you about process. Um, you know, the, the old school model of doing this kind of stuff is, the picture editor works and then you lock the picture and then you hand it over to the sound team. And some weeks later you show up at the mix, uh, and, and you review stuff, but obviously you work in a very different way and you've worked together before and you've worked with Scott Frank before on the show Godless. And so you really kind of have developed a different way of collaborating between the picture and the sound departments. And please tell us about that. Okay. Well then I'm going to go to, I'm going to go with, in the beginning, <laughs> the, the director of photography really sets the frame. The director and the director of photography. So the sound designer and, um, and the mixer, for that matter, we set the space. So a lot of what we've done with the Queen's Gambit is to say that there's this acoustical space, whether it's in somebody's head or whether it's in a large room where we're playing a tournament. And um, I think 
one of the most interesting parts of this was the production mixer, um, uh, Roland uh, um, uh, Winky. He did a really beautiful job of getting, giving us voices and, and vocal performances that were very clean. Uh, they were very honest. They were very, they, he does very little processing uh, on the set. And he also gave us a Deca tree uh, recording, uh, you know, three channel recording, sometimes even five or more channels of, of ambient space within some of these uh, tournament rooms. And that gave us the ability to control the acoustical space in the game. So when we go wide, the soundtrack goes wide. When we go tight, we, we highlight things in, with Foley and with very intricate sound design so that we can bring the audience's focus down to a very, very narrow uh, sonic view of, of the action. And I think, you know, working uh, to prototype this stuff early allowed Michelle to establish these games and, uh, and get the source music working, the score music uh, standing up as best as possible. And uh, so our workflow is not so much how we do things differently, it's really how we attack the creative storytelling process. And we do that by um, looking for novel ideas. And the novel idea in Queen's Gambit is, is I think, acoustical space and scale in terms of sound, yeah. Yeah, I mean, from the picture editing standpoint, because there's always two, right? Even though we're working together, um, you know, we live in editorial, you live with a cut for so long. And, you know, there's so many things in my mind that always make a cut. And in my mind, when I'm cutting, I'm thinking about how the rhythm of the dialogue is playing, the sounds in the rooms, when, when they're sitting in a chair, when they're, when they're making a move or something. So acoustically, like I, I it, it matters, right? And to live in the space of, of, of a scene and know that, okay, this is what it's gonna be. It has a certain rhythm when you're, when you're watching and you're playing it with sound that is going to be there in the end. So, you know, typically as you were talking about before where, you know, editorial would probably do their own um, effects editing um, up until lock. And then it, at, at the end, you know, we would then start exploring sound um, in terms of, you know, how, how it's coming come together in the end. But like in, in our process, you know, because we're already having these conversations, you know, as we're shooting even, um before it's being shot and then and then they already know they being you know the sound team uh, they already know what what things are going to be sounding like you know i get to put everything together and once they receive you know our first assembly which doesn't have any input from me in terms of effects or anything like that maybe once in a while like okay for example with the clock that was that was something but um you know, we start to create what what it's going to be way early on, and we get to live with it for much longer, and and understand like you know how it's it's shaping my cut, you know, as I'm going, and I can now understand what's working, what isn't working. I think for Scott, like he like can't stand to hear like what might be temp music he like wants to hear like what it's going to be like i mean even even with music so um it's definitely something that i've grown accustomed to <laughs> um and i'm very um i feel very spoiled let's just say 
It's a great way to work. So, so Wiley, I'm, I'm curious, was there, is there sort of a, what's the distinction between editing and mixing in this workflow? Uh, like, is there an editing phase and then a mixing phase or how does that all work? We describe it internally as ABC, always be cutting or conforming for that matter, because that uh, is part of the game. And ABM, always be mixing. So the mix really starts in production. So when Roland is, is giving us great ambient tracks and, and, and really highly unfiltered uh, uh, ISO tracks and, and even some beautiful mix tracks with a boom, we start by examining the best path through there. And again, it's acoustical space. So wide shot might rely more on the boom and the close-ups might go more to the, to the ISO mics and things. Uh, but that process starts in production. And so um, uh, throughout the post-production process, we're really looking at um, trying to rapidly prototype stuff so that Michelle has a, a bass track to work with. And um, it's just a more sensible thing. So the, to answer your question, um, you're always mixing. We, we work in our final, what they call a uh, template. Uh, our final mix desk is where we start the process uh, at, at the first edit point. So, uh, you know, the, the, making sound a proxy for something that will be replaced at the final mix makes no sense at all. So the goal for what we just called, you know, cutting room 2.0 is to eliminate some of the proxy process where possible and replace it with tools that help the editor uh, and, and the composer really be work efficiently. So, you know, Carlos knew uh, early on where his starts were gonna be. And he knew that he was either gonna get in before sound design or sound effects or after. And just knowing whether he's leading or lagging the soundtrack is really a wonderful gift to give the composer. So everyone gets a little bit of a gift from this uh, uh, parallel workflow process. And I think that's what Michelle was saying she, she's gotten spoiled uh, towards. It's Look, it's a brilliant and smart way to work and the results speak for themselves. I did wanna ask you, you, know, you mentioned that Carlos Rivera um, is also kind of working on a parallel track with the music. So at what point do you start to hear tracks? Is that something, Michelle, that you have that you can inform the cut at that point? Well, you know, Carlos, I think out of all of us in post <laughs> was the first one on. <laughs> he, he's been working on this the longest. I mean, I, I think he said he started writing sketches a full year prior to, maybe it was January, the January before, um, of the year that we started shooting, which is 2019. And um, so he, there was like a whole, and maybe there might've been 11 tracks of sketches, whether they were gonna live in the show or not, it was, um, you know, they were there to play with, but um, because uh, usually he takes a look at what we have in terms of, I, I send him dry things. We sent him with no music. It's what we have picture, no music, no sound, or no, no like any temp, tracks or anything like that and so he's able to see and and write um based on his sketches that he's been working he um works with scott back and forth with um and conversations that he would have with wiley or me or scott you know once he once they see our assembly 
uh, they start writing up right away to whatever we've sent them. One other thing I'll add to that, Tom Kramer, um, Carlos's music editor, uh, they have a very special relationship. And Tom actually mixes uh, a lot of the demos and things so that uh, when they come to Michelle, we understand where they're sliding up, where they're crescendo, where the peaks are, and, and how they're going to go out. And that really informs like pre-lapse and post-lapse and the kind of things that are classically um, appropriate for like a Scott Frank uh, story. You know, Scott loves, you know, uh, like on Godless, he loves the write-ups and the write-aways, you know, and you don't have a Western unless you, uh, unless you uh, leave time for those things. But in Queen's Gambit, I think he left quite a bit of time to enter a scene and to enter a space and to exit that space uh, with either uh, a punctuation or something interesting. It's a very important part of the soundtrack. Especially with the chess, I think it took a little bit for Carlos to understand where the beats were in the chess as well. Like what was a win, what wasn't a win, and um, what was important to punctuate. So I think, you know, sometimes we would send something over and I would have, I would sit with Tom and say, okay, this is the move where something's happening, you know, and then this is where she gets him or something like that, you know, so that Carlos kind of understood, oh, okay, this is sort of where I'm landing if he's, and, and he can decide how he's going to play that out. Well, I appreciate you um, um, talking about, you know, the way that Scott shot the, the, the piece and Michelle, the way that you edited it, um, leaving room for sound and music to be a big part of the storytelling. And Wiley, you were talking about the importance of acoustic space and that kind of uh, tees up another clip that I wanted to talk about. This is from, this is from episode one. And the way you use sound to c communicate space, I think is really compelling in this project. And obviously most of episode one happens at the Methune school, uh, at, you know, the orphanage where Beth finds herself as a, as a young girl. This particular sequence um, is when Beth uh, uses the cover of the kids watching a movie to break into the pharmacy and steal the tranquilizer pills that she no longer has access to. And it's a, it's a really uh, just delightful film uh, sequence that plays out. And uh, I'd love for, uh, let's take a listen to it and then you can tell us about the construction of this sequence. I just uh, I love that sequence. It's, it's it was such a it was such a 
such a shocking way to end the first episode. Well, it's funny because I think that in fact, I don't, I mean, I know this, this movie was, I mean, the robe was written into the book and I can't remember because early on, I remember having conversations with Carlos who had said that he had recommended to Scott that, that we use um, that last sequence, that music, because, you know, he had said to him, you know, I don't know how how I'm going to score this. I think this score is actually better. (laughs) And, and Scott had said to me, yeah, you know, try it, try it with, um, using the movie and using the score from the movie and we're, we'll license it and we'll get, we'll get the tracks, you know, um, for you to play with. And I think that, um, also, um, Scott had said to me too, oh, you know, it'd be great for her. The only, you know, do what you do, whatever you want, but I just want her to be grabbed, put, shoving those pills in her mouth, like during the hallelujah part. So everything had to lead up to that moment of sync. And, <laughs> Um, which is a little bit of a challenge because, you know, there's this time of her breaking in and, and all that. And, and I had to actually lengthen the sequence because it wasn't as long as it plays for her to break in and unscrew everything and get in there and, you know, be looking back and, and everything. I, I had to find a, a moment in the movie where there were, um, characters were talking and that we could sort of repeat underneath that to, to lengthen that out so that, when um, I'm forgetting uh, the part of the score, but when the score finally comes back in after the dialogue, that that happens when she's made it, you know, she's, she's opening, cracking up the, cracking open the, the window and, and going through. Um, and it's funny because that, that episode actually never in initially didn't end there. And I remember Wiley, you had said this like way in the beginning. Oh, episode should end like when she falls to the ground. Do you remember saying that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you it's did, such a climactic like, moment, you know. Yeah. And, and it, it never did. It, it didn't in the beginning. Yeah. But it sticks the landing beautifully to end with her eyes closing. And she's, you know, she's so beautiful and so vulnerable. But, it, you know, in terms of sound, we don't play a big body fall. We don't, we, we're letting Hallelujah fill the space. And then little Foley, I mean, from when she's breaking in, you hear the screwdriver, you hear the stress and the click, and it's all just giving the audience a sense of, oh my God, there's the, the micro elements of, of the soundtrack playing with this big, overwhelming, you know, high production value, you know, movie in the background. It's a, it's a great, it's a great uh, scale moment for the soundtrack. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Wiley, can you just talk a little bit about, I was so struck by this, by the, the, by the acoustic treatment of the Methuen school and how you built that kind of atmosphere. Cause it's so, it's so foreboding and just, it, it, it just creates a sense of stress and anxiety uh, as you're watching it. Yeah. The, the basement was a very big factor. You know, uh, this idea of a young girl going down into the basement to meet a strange man, uh, Mr. Scheibel, uh, was in itself um, going to be very interesting for us. And so that's another moment where Carlos, you know, you can play opening the door or you can play the reveal of the chessboard. But if you do both, one is diminished by the other. And so these were things that we worked out with music and sound design. Uh, the kind of tones and things that we use in the basement are never going the length of the scene. It's 
you pass something, it hums or buzzes or the water heater, and then it goes away. And this is just a vehicle for creating uh, a desire, I guess, to just see forward into the scene. And of course, Michelle brings these uh, these elements together. And, and uh, but it is a, a very interesting weave between uh, background sounds, between uh, foley elements. Uh, the foley is, is really beautiful. And, um, you know, Rachel Chancy, uh, who is our Foley editor, uh, did a really beautiful job of not covering everything, but covering the important things and allowing us to use that as uh, for scale purposes. So, uh, but uh, yes, the basement at Methune is a really interesting player and it could go very south and the, and the audience knows that. And so we we sort of tease that the whole way, keep them on the, on the edge, so. Uh, there's one more, we have a, another clip um, that I want to touch on. This is from episode seven. I love the way you use space and uh, and you construct space from a picture standpoint and Wiley, what you're doing on the sound perspective. So we're going to roll this clip. This is Beth arriving in Moscow and then the first kind of uh, the first chess match in that grand, huge hall. Uh, and the players arrive and and Berghoff is there and he's greeted as a rock star. Uh, and the first uh, the first match happens. As far as they knew, Harman's level of play wasn't up to theirs. Someone like Nayev probably didn't spend a lot of time preparing for their match. Elizabeth Harman's not at all an important player by their standards. The only unusual thing about her really is her sex. What an amazing sequence there in episode seven. Uh, I love the way that, that the string quartet is happening in that hall and just the acoustic treatment of that space. Wiley, uh, talk to us about how this sequence was designed and, and mixed and put together. First of all, the production design in this scene is outstanding. And uh, this location is in Berlin. Uh, I happen to visit the set while they were shooting this. So it was really great to, to work with, uh, with Roland, uh, the production mixer and his team. Um, we were using the decatree to get the size of that space. And so the walk-in, the introductions, the voices are just beautiful and acoustically uh, outstanding. So that's a really tremendous advantage. You have a beautiful look, you have beautiful, well-dressed sets and characters, and you have a production mixer that took the time to put a decatree with uh, three Omni microphones way up high in that space to get us the sound of the of the room, including the sound of the clock smacks and people entering and the voices of the announcers and stuff. So um, this was a very uh, a collaborative experience, I guess, for the sound department, because uh, one, we had all the advantages of great production. Uh, two, we had the ability to sort of mock this stuff up so that Michelle could, could really enjoy the, the space herself. Um, and then you know, uh, we have great performances. You know, the, the climax of, of this act is really emotional. It uh, takes us deep into Beth's head. 
she's victorious, which gives the audience, you know, something to cheer for and about. And, uh, you know, really classic, um, crafty filmmaking. And that's what I would say, just, you know, this is a very crafty project. And Scott and, uh, and Bill Horberg and, the, and, and Michelle and all the department heads uh, showed up with game to kind of contribute something uh, to the success of this and uh, wonderful to be a part of that. Yeah, I mean, look, this is, we're trying to show, you know, the grandeur she's been anticipating this moment for a while, being fearful of it and and anticipating it and um you know it's you know what i love about the sequence is actually this odd intercut um with the quartet um and the children the prodigies that are playing you know for for this small audience of players and and how we introduce them as such you know as they're coming out um to sit down and play and it's such a such an odd like austere way of like beginning um what what the tournament is going to be and um yeah i mean i think that um i mean it's such a beautiful design you know that location um and and also the way everything sounds um once we're in that hall and you know for the rest of that episode you know, we really play the grandeur of all the people there and you know, jumping out to the outside of the announcers and stuff. There, there's some beautiful cutaways in that in this sequence. I mean, you not only are in this beautiful acoustical space, but then you go outside and you see the common people sort of, you know, the, the crowd getting bigger and bigger. Everything is moving visually and sonically to this crescendo. Yeah, I really appreciate, Wiley, what you said, too, about, like, I think one of the reasons why this show works so well is because every department is playing at the top of their game from production design, uh, you know, for cinematography to editing to sound to music. Like, it's this is just as good as it gets. And so it's a remarkable achievement. And congratulations to the both of you for this amazing show. I really appreciate you taking time today to talk to us about it. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you to your audience as well. Yeah. Thank you, Glenn. Absolutely. Many thanks to Michelle and Wiley for sitting down and talking with us today. I'd also like to thank our friends at Netflix who were gracious enough to put this uh, interview together for us and to provide us with those amazing clips to deconstruct and talk about. If you haven't watched The Queen's Gambit yet, do yourself a favor and check it out on Netflix. You don't need to know anything about chess in order to really enjoy this riveting show. And if you haven't already, please make sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. We have a ton of exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks that you won't want to miss. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in the show notes or by searching for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on the Apple Podcasts app. It really helps raise awareness of our show so that we can continue to grow. Until then, thanks again for listening. This has been the Sound and Image Lab, a production of the Dolby Institute. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry. Production support is by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Tristan Enriquez. Thank you for listening.